An exclusive SiriusXM Town Hall event. Hamilton. Direct from the Richard Rogers Theater in New York City. Celebrating a record-breaking 16 Tony nominations. Look around, look around how we are to be alive right now. With the cast and creative team on stage. And our SiriusXM subscribers in the room where it happens. And now, from the home of Hamilton, an American musical, your host, Anderson Cooper. Just to How y'all doing? Welcome. I thought we'd just go down and just have everybody introduce themselves, maybe right. starting with you, Lynn. A very good place to start. I'm Lin-Manuel Miranda. Uh, I'm the writer, and sometimes Hamilton. I'm Thomas Kale, and I directed the show. I'm Philippa Sue, and I play Eliza. Leslie Odom Jr., Aaron Burr. I'm Andy Blankenbuehler. I choreographed the show. Christopher Jackson, I play George Washington. I'm Paul Taswell, I'm the costume designer. I'm David Corns, I'm the set designer. David Diggs, the Marquis de Lafayette, and Thomas Jefferson. Alex Lockmore, I'm the music director and orchestrator of the show. Howell Bakley, I'm the lighting designer. I will say I'm disappointed because I expected, I was told I could wear a costume, and that's why I agreed to do this, but that's all right. Um, let's start with you, Lynn. It is exactly seven years and four days since you were in the East Room of the White House. Is it really? I did research. Yes. Amazing. If you haven't read the Hamilton book, by the way, uh, you should get it because it's extraordinary. It's, uh, they haven't printed many of them. It's hard to get, but if you, if you can get it, it's amazing. But yeah, seven years, uh, four days exactly. Can you take me back to that moment? You were supposed to sing something from In the Heights. Yeah, it's, it's actually really funny. I was, my day job was on this stage uh, seven years and four days ago, um, and we were... Um, I got invited to the White House to sing a song, and they said, we'd love something from In the Heights, but if you have something on the American experience... <sighs> um, and I said, boy, do I have a hot 16 bars about Alexander Hamilton. But I didn't have a song. I really, I had the two verses. I had sort of a chorus that hadn't quite settled yet. And um, I basically called Alex Lackamore and said, let's figure out what the piano version is of this beat I've been writing to that I created in GarageBand. Um, and um, we went to the White House. I mean, it was, and, and it's funny, it, it, it was seven years and four days ago because my time hop on my Facebook uh, showed up recently. And all of my entries from that day are Lin-Manuel Miranda, it was still in the third person then, back when Facebook updates were in the third person, is in a van with James Earl Jones. What? Lin-Manuel Miranda is meeting Michelle Obama. What? Um, and it's just sort of this weird list of things I'm, texting into my phone, but it was, a, I mean, the van ride with James Earl Jones would have been the highlight, was the highlight of my life thus far. Um, Did you see President Obama in the audience when you were... Yes, uh, President Obama and his wife and the kids and the first abuela uh, were all at one table. 
and um, you can actually watch the video. You can see I'm looking at them first, and I'm so nervous that I start stammering, and then I take my gaze upward because I realize that that way lies madness. Um, and it was a very surreal room. It was not unlike this room, um, but it was George Stephanopoulos next to Zach Braff, next to Spike Lee, next. It was like a Mad Libs of the internet. Um, and uh, so I looked up towards the light fixtures at the end of the hall, and then I was okay. Well, actually, let me ask for everybody who's on the stage now, do you, do you, when you see the audience and you know somebody famous is in the audience, do you look for them? Does it freak you out? To see President Obama in the audience. I don't, I don't like to know. I know Lynn, there's a list that, that exists before every show that has all the fancies, you know, so you can know if you'd like to know. Um, and so it's an opt-in program. Yeah. And so, right, exactly. So now at this point, we all know backstage who likes to know, who doesn't. Chris doesn't mind knowing. David doesn't I mind I like knowing. to know. Excited. Before, before doesn't change the show, but I'm before excited. Beyonce came, I feel like my entire like perception of famous people, the audience was like, "Is today the Beyonce day? <laughs> is today the day that Beyonce is here?" It's like BC and AD after Beyonce yeah. and before that's right. Beyonce. <laughs> that's yeah. exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. I don't, I don't actually see past the first five rows. My eyes are terrible, so like. <laughs> as long as the celebrities aren't sitting here, I don't know they're here. So, like, y'all are people and y'all are just shapes. <laughs> but, so, seven years and four days ago, when you were there at the White House, it, you didn't know what this was. You didn't know it was going to be a musical. You didn't know if it was a... Uh, no, an album. And, and actually, if you listen, I introduced it as an album. I, I thought I was going to get my Andrew Lloyd Webber on, and I was going to make a... Concept album. Rap album. <laughs> getting your Andrew Lloyd Webber on is that yeah. you make a rap album. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's how I get my Andrew Lloyd Webber on. <laughs> how do you get your Andrew Lloyd Webber on? Um, and, uh, but yeah, I wanted to make a, a concept album and I wanted to be sort of freed from the strictures of making a quote-unquote well-made musical, which I know because I've done it is the hardest thing you can do. I was going to write the greatest hits of Hamilton's life um, as songs, and then someone else would have to figure out how to stage it later. Um, and he said, looking at Tommy Kale, and, and then Tommy and I just sort of set about doing what we do, uh, you know, a couple years later. Um, and, and when Tommy got involved, it, it became what it became. But, but that's what's interesting, because, I mean, it was a couple years before you realized, oh, this is actually... This is going to be a musical. There's actually a quote from the New York Times uh, from the, uh, I think it's at the American Songbook concert. They wrote, is the Hamilton mixtape, because that's what it was called initially, is the Hamilton mixtape a future Broadway musical, a concept album, a multimedia extravaganza in search of a platform? Does it even matter? What it is, is hot. <laughs> so even then, you weren't sure what it was. When, when did you realize, I mean, t Tommy, when did you think this should be a musical, a Broadway musical? I just want to see how long I could pause. Um... <laughs> Lynn was getting way too many laughs. Um, all right, well, that's like one and a half for me. Um, you know, so Lynn did the song at the White House with Alex. Um, I'd, I'd uh, experienced it on the internet with everyone else, and Lynn had played it for me at some point, you know, prior to that. And then Lynn worked on a, a song that became my shot for a little more than a year. Uh, we did this benefit uh, at this little theater company called Ars Nova. Uh, Lynn and David and Chris Jackson and... Uh, and I and a couple other folks uh, have this group called Freestyle Love Supreme, which is an improvisational hip-hop show. And we were doing this benefit for 
that group, and they actually asked us to perform a non-improv song, so, uh, which was weird for us. <laughs> um, and so we did, uh, we did this benefit, and there were about 96 people there, and Lynn performed my shot. And that was the first time I'd actually been in the room and felt uh, what an audience was feeling. That was the first time where I, I uh, started to understand that there was some sort of chemical interaction between what Lynn was doing and what was being received. Was that the first time you actually heard a song from it? No, I mean, okay. I'd, I'd heard the songs, just, but just like just us, like rehearsing, room. exactly. Okay. Um, and, and at the party afterwards, we were standing around, and this was in June of 2011. In the loft of in, ours, no? Yeah, and... Um, you know, Lynn was like, you know, eating cheese and crackers and people were saying nice things to him, which is usually when I realize I should make my move because um, <laughs> he is neither hungry and he has just been satiated in his uh, applause <laughs> uh, <laughs> quotient. My need for validation. Yeah. Yes. Lynn, did you hear how hard they were clapping? We should do more. Um, I've made like a little bit of a career off that exact thing. Um, so it was in that moment when I said, let's pick a date six months from now. We can do it at Ars Nova. We can do it at uh, Town Hall, we can do it anywhere. Let's just pick a date and work on two songs a month and see if we can come up with a dozen songs. So the first song we performed in January of 2012, um, Alex started to put a small band together. We started to arrange and orchestrate. Um, you know, we got a group of actors together and the first song we did that night was My Shot, but it was not the first song we performed. We did some sort of covers. And I watched an audience of 400 people uh, get hit by lightning. I mean, from the downbeat of that song. And that's when I knew. That's when I knew that something uh, needed to exist in the live form, whether it was a narrative or not, you know, was sort of for us to discover. And Alex, did you know instantly, I mean, when Lynn came to you with the, the lyrics, how to get the, what the notes should be, what should be the sharps, what should be flats? Yeah, I mean, well, what's great is that, you know, as Lynn said, you know, I remember very clearly him coming into my dressing room, which is the same dressing room that I have now when we were in Doing in the Heights. He came in with the lyric sheet and showed me what the progression was for the opening song and, and said, yeah, here's this rap about Alexander Hamilton. And at first, it's like, have you ever tried to explain the show to Hamilton to people? Sometimes the, if they don't know anything about it, it's kind of a little bit of a hard sell because you're like, it's about the founding fathers, it's hip hop, but it's like spoken in today's vernacular and they're always kind of like, oh uh, yeah, I can kind of picture that. So when he told me about it at first, I'm like, okay, yeah, I, I can kind of picture it. And you, know, you were quite sure like how people were going to kind of take it because... When you watch like the White House video, he explains it to them and people start laughing about it. Like Lynn has to say, you laugh, but it's true. But then once they hear it and they hear how clever the rhymes are and they see how serious he is about it, we're like, oh my God, that's where you, you start to feel it. I know for me personally, when I heard my shot a year later, something about that track and that hook and what it was talking about, that's when I really started to feel the fire. I'm like, oh my God, this is really serious. Like this was not a joke. Lynn was 100% serious about this and it really started to take shape. I am not thrown away my shot. I am not throwing away my shot. Hey, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, and I'm not throwing away my shot. I'ma get a scholarship to King's College. I probably shouldn't brag, but dag, I'm amazed and astonished. The problem is I got a lot of brains, but no polish. I got a holler just to be heard with every word. I drop knowledge. I'm a diamond in the rough, a shiny piece of coal. Trying to reach my goal, my power of speech, unimpeachable. Only 19, but my mind is older. These New York City streets get cold. I shoulder every burden, every Send 
sleep. Then King George turns around, runs a spending spree. He ain't never gonna set his descendants free. So there will be a revolution in this century. Enter me. He says in parentheses. Don't be shocked when your history book mentions me. I will lay down my life if it sets us free. Eventually, you'll see my ascendancy. And I am not thrown away, nah, shot. I am not thrown away, nah, shot. And yo, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry. And I'm not thrown away, nah, shot. Without the monarchy, the unrest in France will lead to anarchy. Anarchy, are you say? Are you saw oh, anarchy? <laughs> When I fight, I make the other side panicky with my shit. Yo, I'm a tailor's apprentice, and I got John knuckleheads and local parentis. I'm joining the rebellion, cause I know what's my chance. The social league advance instead of sewing some pants. I'm gonna take a shot. And but we'll never be truly free until those in bondage have the same rights as you and me. Right. You and I do or die. Ooh. Wait till I sally in on a stallion with the first black battalion. Geniuses, lower your voices. You keep out of trouble and you double your choices. I'm with you, but the situation is fraught. You've got to be carefully taught. If you talk, you're gonna get shot. Bird, check what we got. Mr. Lafayette, hard rock like Lancelot. I think your pants look hot. Lawrence, I like you a lot. Let's hatch a plot. Blacker than the kettle calling the pot. What are the odds of God to put us all in one spot? Pop in a squad and conventional wisdom like it or not. A bunch of revolutionary manumission abolitionists. Position, show me where the ammunition is. Oh, am I talking too loud? Sometimes I get overexcited, shoot off at the mouth. I never had a group of friends before. I promise that I'll make y'all proud. Let's get this guy in front of a crowd. Every action's an act of creation I'm laughing in the face of casualties A 
sorrow For the first time I'm thinking past tomorrow And I Richard Rogers Theater in New York City with the Tony nominees of Hamilton in an exclusive SiriusXM on Broadway Town Hall hosted by Anderson Cooper. David, you were shaking your head. When you first heard about this, did it seem like, oh yeah, that's a natural fit? Nice. Rap and Alexander. I said it was a terrible idea. I'm pretty sure I. (laughs) Bridge that I said it to Tommy's face when he told me about it. Like I, this is true. Yeah. Uh, David is a truth teller. <laughs> yeah. No. I mean, look. The, <laughs> um, you get really nervous as a as a rapper, as a person who's just grown up writing rap songs, like and and being in that world. You get really nervous about bullshit around your culture. You know, about somebody trying to take that and force it onto something where it doesn't belong. And that's what it sounded like to me. And it was like, but. It's Lynn, and I had known Lynn for a long time and knew he was a genius, so I was like, of course, send me the music, and I needed money. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, so, and then, but as soon as I heard the music, which weren't even, it was the demos. It's Lynn singing every part of every song it's on me. Beats Made in Lynn. Garage Band. Oh, like, Pippa yeah, sounds yes. better, guys. Pippa sounds a lot can, better. Like, uh, uh, and as soon as you heard it, it made perfect sense. Um, and you realize that no part of this was forced, and that's why it's brilliant that everything was was not only necessary to tell the story, but also so personal to Lynn. I mean, like, it was just, it was like hearing my friend at his best, being totally brilliant all over these songs, and it was, I couldn't, I couldn't not be a part of it. I just begged and pleaded and like, please let me just hang out with you guys. Like, I just, let me be in the room. I just want to be there. Tell me what to do. I'll do it. And, and Lynn, I mean, that is your process. You do this on a laptop. It's you. you you're sampling sounds from a program. Is that right? Yeah, you'll hopefully never hear my demo to Helpless, which I made the unwise decision of singing in the female key. And it's, I have never been the type to try to grab a spotlight. Um, He'll tweet it tonight. Who are we kidding? <laughs> Check your SoundCloud. Check your SoundCloud. By the way, what is up with your Twitter? You tweet all the friggin' time. I mean, I, I was checking your Twitter out yesterday, and I read, like, 50 tweets, and then I looked. They were all from yesterday. I was like... Well, yesterday I had a speech to write, so I tweeted a lot. Um, That's counterintuitive. <laughs> I, I, I think it's this. I think musicals take a long time. I was in my last musical when I started writing... Hamilton, seven years to get here. I've found that Twitter is the opposing muscle group. You know, it's going to take me a year to write my shot. Then let me get this other stuff off of my chest and other thoughts out of my brain. But you also engage with people on Twitter, which I just find fascinating. And you have conversations with like an egg. You know, it's yeah. like that's their picture. I'm not above having a conversation with an egg. It's an egg and there's no name. It's just an egg and you're communicating with them. It's very interesting. Tommy, when he came to you though and with this idea... Because 
I mean, there's this famous picture of you in, uh, I think, in a hammock on your vacation in Mexico, reading reading the the book, the biography of, of Hamilton by Ron Chernow. But actually, he had come to you before that vacation with the idea, hadn't he? Or he had mentioned it to you. He had talked about it. That 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 vacation. I just love. There's a famous picture of you. Well. <laughs> it's like you in a hammock. Um, that was the vacation where he grabbed the book and we first started to communicate about it. But only in that he had found a, a source of inspiration and maybe was going to write a song. I mean, it, it didn't... Yeah, we have one G-chat about it from... I'm on vacation. I think I say something like, oh man, if I ever marry Vanessa, I'm never going to be able to top this place. Um, and I say, you know, just reading Hamilton and watching Mad Men season one. I mean, can, I was Can you relaxing. explain, I mean, to people what it was in reading that book that struck you that that you that you heard the music that you heard this um it you know the 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 big thing was i didn't know all i knew about hamilton when i picked up the book was ron chernow had great reviews all over the spine of the book i knew that hamilton's son had died in a duel and i knew hamilton died in a duel a few years later i i learned that much and retained it from uh, 11th grade social studies and so i knew this would have an intense ending. I knew I would, I would be reading a really good book that would have an intense ending. That's all I really knew about Hamilton when I pick up the book. Um, I didn't know he was born in the Caribbean. And when you read the first chapter, it out Dickens is Dickens. I mean, the cruelty and the hardship um, that he sort of went through. Um, but it's really when he gets to um, this hurricane that destroys St. Croix and he writes an essay about what happened. He just writes an essay about the scene, um, and then that letter is published in the Royal Danish-American Gazette for relief efforts. And people who read that take up a collection to send him to the colonies to get his education. And I go, well, that's what my favorite hip-hop artists do. They write about their struggles so well that they transcend them. Um, and I sort of had that notion very early in the book, and then it kept proving me right. Like, I just kept finding other sort of ways in which his life as a writer who wrote his way to extraordinary circumstances and into extraordinary trouble sort of mirrored the lives of my favorite hip-hop artists. So I never pictured the literal founding fathers when I was reading this book. I was like, all right, well, who's the hip-hop R&B equivalent of these people? Because I was already picturing it as sort of a concept album very early on. And Leslie, when you first heard, I think it was January 2013 in Poughkeepsie. Is that right? Mm. It was the summer. They have a... They have oh, a they have a festival of new work that happens up in at Vassar, and uh, they were doing. My wife was up there working on a show, and so I was up there all the time visiting her. And I heard they were doing a reading of of Hamilton. And my my experience of Lynn's work was, I had heard in the Heights. Um, this was a, a while ago, so I would I was still taking. Greyhound buses places and stuff and so I was on a Greyhound but I didn't even have I, it was before I saw the show um, and I put on In the Heights and um, I tell you I mean from the very first rhythms um, uh, the start of that album the tears shot perpendicular out of my <laughs> eyes it, there was something it, you captured it on, on the album I remember when I saw it in this theater I sat around over there you know uh, they can't they don't hear what I'm they don't see what I'm saying on the radio but it's really interesting, but uh, but they hear you, Leslie. They hear you. You know, they. I want them to feel it. I want them to feel it. But uh, anyway, there was um, 
there was a, a need to communicate that I've spoken about before that um, has always moved me and has always um, drawn me towards something. And that's what I heard in In the Heights. And so I knew at the very least I was going to see something like that. And I, there were no tickets even then. It was a black box theater with the very first reading of Hamilton, Act One. And um, I managed to weasel my way in. Uh, and I sat in the back row of a black box theater. And I was in a puddle by the second song. I'll tell you that the song that really wrecked me was the story of tonight. Because there were four men of color on a stage singing a song about friendship and love and brotherhood. I had never seen anything like that. That was, that was the revolution. It was, it was beautiful. And every song was better than the last. And I never thought that I would be in it. But every day I, I pinch myself because I can't believe that I somehow ended up on this stage. And Christopher, you were in, in the Heights, and Lynn actually said to you something like, I got the next thing. I got the next thing. I said, what is it? This is during 96,000, I think. Yeah, we were in the bodega. We are in the bodega. <laughs> it's, we have a it few was either between 96,000 or during uh, No Me Diga. Either way, we both spent time in two-minute chunks, 45-second chunks, having, you know, life conversations. <laughs> we talked about everything behind that counter, and no one would ever know, and then we come out and we sing and dance. Um, I got the next thing. What is it? It's about the Treasury Secretary. <laughs> what? It's Treasury Secretary. Oh, okay. Who? <laughs> Alexander Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton. Oh, we're late. We gotta go. So we run out on stage to him. And then for real though. <laughs> exactly. Your punchline was better. Um, but yeah, yeah. And then some time passes. I'm walking out of the stage, uh, into the stage uh, right uh, doorway over here. And uh, our director, Thomas Kale, I don't know if you've heard of him. He's right there. Um, he says, Mr. President. I said, what? Mr. President. Okay, no, we're working backwards now. We're, okay, the Treasury Secretary, Alexander Hamilton, George, George Washington, okay. I'm jumping for joy. I run out after that show, and I go get the biography that Chernow wrote uh, on Washington. So I've been researching the show as long as he's been writing the show. Um, and it's way easier to get jobs when you don't have to audition for them. <laughs> Um, yeah, and, and, uh, and so that's how that happened. And Philip, in terms of playing Eliza, I understand you actually met with Ron Chernow in order to kind of to understand her. What did, what, did, what did you learn from that? Well, um, so as we know, um, the women in history are kind of, um, their voices have been lost. And um, I found that on my own, it was kind of difficult to find much about Eliza. And I had his biography, and I was reading it as fast as I could. <laughs> um, it's huge. Uh, and we were about to start rehearsals, and I asked him if he would meet up and chat about um, Eliza and about the story and, and um, you know, his, his journey in discovering Alexander Hamilton. And I discovered um, in, that my research wasn't going to be about finding a list of facts, like Eliza was obviously like, she was born here, she did this, but not like, you know, and then she did this, and then she wore this, and then she spoke to this person, like that stuff wasn't there. I didn't know what it was. But listening to Ron speak about 
how much Eliza reminded him of his wife, um, his late wife, and his love that he had for her, and um, her love for him, and her uh, inspiration that she provided for him was kind of like, it, it was the, the awe moment of, oh, my research isn't necessarily going to be about facts. It's going to be about human interaction and um, love and humanity and why we do the things we do. Um, so, yeah. But it's interesting, Lynn, because Hamilton perhaps had, he not only had an affair, he perhaps had a second affair with your sister, sorry. And to... She's not, not really here. Sister. <laughs> She's not here. <laughs> but I mean, but, it, but it's not clear in the history books whether or not there was an affair. Is that, is that right? I mean... Right. They and so a... how on a stage, that's got to present a challenge as a writer to write something which historically you're not sure did they have, and yet you need to have it be possible that they've had this. Well, I went back and forth on whether to include Angelica at all in the story, because... Angelica is Eliza's sister. Angelica play, is played by Renee Elise Goldsberry, who's amazing. Um, and it's... But the fun is actually kind of in the ambiguity. You know, there's... Freedom is actually not great for an artist. Restrictions are where it's great for an artist because you have to work within them and figure out creative solutions to them. And this is a, a great example of a creative challenge. We've got these very flirtatious letters between Hamilton and his sister-in-law, um, complete with comma sexting, which took me weeks to figure out how to explain within a lyric. Comma sexting? So if I were to write my dearest Anderson and put a comma after dearest, I'm writing my dearest Anderson. <laughs> As a as former seventh grade English teacher, I love that kind of stuff. Um, and so, um, so, again, we're parsing these letters, and um, Ron sort of doesn't really answer the will, did they or didn't they? And I didn't feel it was my job to answer it either. I certainly don't know more than Ron did. He's the one who was in there with the primary sources. Um, so, for me, the fun was in creating this love triangle, because there's also no... It, historical record of any um, bad feelings between Eliza and Angelica. In fact, the evidence is that Eliza loved the attention that Angelica displayed on her husband and her. And so it creates this sort of interesting love triangle where there's, there's not really a bad guy. There's no, there's no fighting over a man. It's, it's none of that. It's just sort of messy and complicated and full of things unsaid, which is, feels so much more like real life than, than most and you, shows. You, you were writing the songs in order. I mean, you, the first song you wrote is the first Yeah, for the most the part. Play. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. The, for the songbook series, the goal was, let's write the greatest hits of Hamilton's life, that if there were a musical about Hamilton's life, what are the things that would definitely be depicted? And so we had Helpless, but we didn't have Satisfied yet. We went from Helpless, we had Say No to This because we knew the Mariah Reynolds affair would be a big deal, and that song is almost exactly unchanged. We had the Cabinet Battles. Um, we didn't have a duel yet. Um, but the, I mean, did the opening lines come to you first? Yes. Yes, that, the that opening the lines were my challenge. Can I get through the first two chapters of Ron's book in the first song? Can I get him to New York? by the end of our opening number. And I was taking a big page from Sweeney Todd there, right? Sweeney Todd ends with, the opening number ends with Sweeney Todd getting to London Harbor and like landing and nothing's gonna be the same again. And so I was sort of taking my cue from that of like, all right, here comes Hamilton. Can you, can you for those who are listening who don't know the opening lines, can you say what the opening lines are? If you listen to serious Broadway, you don't know the opening <laughs> lines of Hamilton. 
Are you serious? Are you serious, serious? Um, Broadway names with Julie James. My dad and I listen to it all the time in the car. Um, uh, no, I actually don't know them anymore. Leslie's the one who does them nightly. Well, the, uh, well you talked about the, 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 the grandparents. Uh, uh, do you, do you oh, sorry, I didn't hear the end thing you said. I said Leslie's the one who does them. I have oh. completely forgotten them. Okay. Well, and, and one thing, you know, when Lynn does the number at the White House in 2009, it's all Burr. It was a song that was written from Burr's point of view. Right. And one of the things that happened when we did that first concert is we decided to try to distribute and let all, all of the people who had some impact on Hamilton or who Hamilton impacted and we would soon meet come out in this, in this form where we didn't necessarily know who they were. And the way that manifests itself with the work that Mr. Paul Taswell did on the show is the opening of the show is what we call our parchment look. It's, it's, uh, it has not saturated into color. You know, right. Burr has a very specific look, but we actually watch Hamilton put on color and, and start to... Well, that's one to, of the things evolve. so interesting about the, 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 the design, that the costuming is, is the choices you made. I'm wondering how you, how you kind of research that, because obviously there's historical precedent but you also want it to be thoroughly modern and, and, and contemporary. Um, and yet also the, the coloring, the, the sort of the cream color, the, the parchment color that everybody is wearing until they become a primary character. Sure. Um, uh, I mean, what, what my job is, I mean, what my task is as, as a designer is to, um, to give you the, the, the first view of the, the, um, the visual of who the characters are. Um, so with this piece, I mean, we spent a lot of time in, in David's studio looking at images and, you know, the, the, a huge Bible of, of imagery that, that all of us, all the creatives, looked at to try and establish how do we want to tell this story? How do we best serve this piece that says so much, that's speaking so strongly? Um, and, you know, much of that was, uh, it was, it was the, the grayscale of the you know the American Revolutionary War and all the four the the time of the our, our forefathers uh, all the way up to 2016. So anywhere in there uh, was possible, uh, and then choosing what those what what parts of those periods add up to the most provocative way to tell the story. Was there a moment of thinking that they're going to wear wigs? Because that's clearly... Absolutely. So, you thought of that. We, we, yes, we, we, uh, we, we looked at all of that. I mean, or just doing it completely uh, uh, modern, you know, and have it be like street clothes uh, and what that would mean. Um, the, we had the fortunate uh, position with, you know, w once we were... Um, uh, doing it with the public that, you know, it, it, uh, we were staging it or Tommy was, you know, going to direct a, st a staged version. Um, I decided to dress everybody uh, in period clothes so that we could see what it would be to have everyone in straightforward 18th century clothes. Uh, so I pulled a bunch of stuff out of, their st uh, out of the public stock, got them all dressed, um, and before we were able to answer the the other option, which was to do it completely contemporary, uh, the decision was made that this was indeed the best way to do it. Um, and then realizing as, that I, as I went through the process of designing it that uh, what, what, do, what designing it that way does, what putting everyone in 18th century clothes from the period does is you then are able to move away from that 
you know, you, you accept what you're seeing, and then you can just invest in who mm. the characters are. And I think that it allows you to invest even more in the characters because you're not so, you're not trying to mash up what, you know, who they are as a contemporary person so much. You just kind of, you push that aside and you just engage uh, much more naturally. Leslie, I want to ask you, first of all, about the opening lines, because I just think they're so powerful. Um, if, if you want to say them for those... Uh, I've forgotten them, too. You've forgotten no them, too? I have no idea what all they right. are. Well, when the curtain comes down, you guys... Okay, no, I can, I can do them. All right. Well, yeah, I want to, talk to you, ask you about that, but also the, the Wait For It song, because I think that song is, is so powerful and such an important part of the show. Um, how does a bastard... Orphan, son of a whore and a Scotsman, dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean by providence, impoverished and squalor, grow up to be a hero and a scholar. Ah. <laughs> um, no, Anthony Ramos. Anthony Ramos isn't here. That was like but, pulling uh, teeth, I gotta say. On <laughs> <laughs> my part, get that. Thank you. Uh, we're a reticent bunch. Um, Wait for it. I, I, my first thought after Wait for It was again, every song is better. Wait for it came after Satisfied, which at that particular time, I, it blew my mind like it blows. And this is before staging, this is before Andy got his hands on it um, and makes it even that much more thrilling. But I just heard that song, the rewind, and, and now we're getting to know a, a, a different perspective of what we just saw. So I didn't know if I would be able, that if Lynn would be able to top that, and then wait for it happens. And my thought was, whoever gets to sing that song, Eight Shows a Week, is gonna be a really lucky actor. I, I had no idea it would be me, but uh, it's, it's just one of my favorite songs ever written. I think that it is, um, and it is, sometimes people think that the room where it happens would be the most challenging, but for me, it depends on, you know, different actors, but, you know, for me to sort of come out on stage and act all wild and crazy is not the hardest thing for me to do. Um, but that kind of sustained tension, that kind of, um, you know, it's like threading a needle. And when we, if we can get an audience to be silent and focused with us on that, on that song, that's, the hardest thing and the most satisfying thing for me. Theodosia writes me a letter every day. I'm keeping her bed warm while her husband is away. He's on the British side in Georgia. He's trying to keep the colonies in line. Well, he can keep all of Georgia, Theodosia, she's mine. Love doesn't discriminate between the sinners and the saints. It takes and it takes and it takes and we keep loving anyway. We laugh and we cry and we break and we make our mistakes. And if there's a reason I'm by her side, so many have tried. Legacy to protect. Death doesn't discriminate between the sinners and the saints. It takes and it takes and it takes and we keep living anyway. We rise and we fall and we break and we make our mistakes. And if there's a reason, I'm still alive. 
Exhibits no restraint, takes and he takes and he takes and he keeps winning anyway. Changes the game, plays and he raises the stakes. And if there's a reason he seems to thrive and so few survive, then goddammit, I'm willing to wait for it. The Town Hall event, exclusively on Sirius XM on Broadway. We now return to the Richard Rogers Theater with the Tony nominees and host Anderson Cooper. You asked about Satisfied, and Lynn mentioned that. Because Helpless was the first song that existed with that dynamic, and at that point, Angelica had one line. Um, you know, which was about a harem. Uh, check the album out, guys, if you haven't. It's, it's on the album. Um, and, and when we started talking about the idea for Satisfied, what it, what it, it did a couple things. One is it actually set the rules for the duel. Because what it did for the audience was we had a show that was, was telescoping through time, but it was moving in a straight linear narrative. And what Satisfied actually does is it, it shifts the axis and all of a sudden, we've, we've lived through something and helpless, and then in Satisfied, we go back to it and we expand it. Uh, you know, Andy can sort of talk about the bullet time matrix that we tried to create with that, but in effect, what Satisfied is doing is also looking at the way that time stands still when the bullet is fired. So it's actually laying groundwork for what will come later, and that's the first, the, the, the initial duel in the first act is the second part of that, and then the final duel is, you know, is the third in that, in that little triumvirate. But I think that there, there was a moment also that we got to experience, especially when we were doing the show downtown before there was an album, and when the discovery of the show was 290 people at a time, where, you know, the, the staging of Satisfied and, and the work that Andy did there is, um, you know, is, is something that uh, is evident um, you know, in this show, and so you, you become conscious of it, but it is intricate, and it is a level of mathematics and storytelling where the math falls away, and it is, it is crystal clear storytelling that is infused with humanity and, uh, and then sets, sets an expectation for the audience 
that, oh, what I thought could happen just got exploded. And that's what it was like watching that down at the public before anybody knew what it was. Oh, this is a show where this happens. And I say this with, with, with humility and knowing our place, but it's a little bit like what At the Ballet did in Chorus Line. Sondheim talked about that. You watch it and you think it's going to be like, oh, this person goes and this person goes. And then all of a sudden, At the Ballet happens and those three people come out and the rules have changed. Which, which also was obviously at the public theater, which is yeah. where, where you guys were. Andy, in terms of those choices, I mean, to me what's fascinating about this is there are all these choices which you made and in collaboration, which maybe the audience don't, doesn't even register necessarily consciously with the audience. I was reading uh, Burr moves in straight lines, whereas Hamilton moves in sort of arcs. Uh, well, even before we had the turntable, I, I felt that as we started staging the show, it was always revolving, it was always revolving. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that Hamilton never would stop thinking, that the options were infinite, the things he wanted to accomplish, accomplish were infinite. And so he, Hamilton's movement is always circling throughout the course of the show. And as we kept working on it, I realized that unlike clockwise momentum, I feel the audience perceives forward progress or at least um, inevitability counterclockwise. Maybe that's because we read left to right, I'm not sure. But everything in the show kept spilling counterclockwise. Um, and so if you notice in the show, every new choice that Hamilton makes makes the stage turn counterclockwise on their own personal axis, on the, on the floor. And then whenever... I've done this so many times and I didn't know that. <laughs> For the serious FM audience, yeah, you guys got what? that, right? <laughs> and then, to me, like, whenever we're uh, resisting, when we're resisting fate, the action on the stage goes clockwise. And that only happens a few times, when Hamilton's dying, when people don't want him to die, when Burr rides the turntable at the very end, wishing his life had taken a different Christopher, turn. the look on your face right now is, is <laughs> priceless. I wish the audience could hear it. And that's why when it. you cross the stage left, it's so important. You don't understand, I'm learning about my show right now when he's talking. No, I'm serious. I, I wasn't fortunate enough to take part in the, the last couple of workshops that, that, where they were staging things. So when we went into rehearsal for downtown, I felt like all of my best friends were on the train car at the front and I was trying to catch the, the rear. And I kept saying, Andy, I don't know what's happening. Tell me what's going on. I don't know. And Tommy would just sort of walk the other way like, oh, you, okay, you're here, okay, good. But I literally had why no idea that? what I was doing or where I was going or why. So I'm still learning today why I move over there and why I got a note just the other day that I was two feet out of my light. Inevitability. <laughs> We just did our 325th show the other day. We're in deep with this, either, and I'm though. still finding out things about my show that I didn't know. And for, and for Burr, like, I feel like Burr's, Burr's choices were limited. And so what you're referring to is that, that Burr from the very beginning of the show is, is very linear. So I can wait for it, for example. There's four chairs in a box. The cast sits in a box. And, and everything is like, I could go this way or I could go this way. It's black and white choices that ultimately in the show go down the barrel of a gun. Like he feels like my only choice is down this barrel of a gun, whereas Hamilton's choices are always circular. Um, thus, that's why the duel rotates on its, on its own axis. <laughs> it's, really, it's really hard to collaborate with Andy because he's a hundred times smarter than us. 
Yeah. But you were, one thing that, we, that you were just saying that the, the coolest thing is Lynn once said, and, and I didn't, I thought the show was going to be about the American Revolution, and Tommy and Lynn were saying that it's really about the, the power of the impulse of thought. And we were talking about the matrixy speed and, and satisfied, the depth like the lyric can, can go enables us to actually stop and like the movie Inception just go deeper and deeper and deeper into the moment where Hamilton would make a decision or Burr would make a decision. And the writing and the piece has allowed us to peel back so many different layers that are about that one instant where a decision is made and how many repercussions that decision can have. And one of the things that's my favorite about Hamilton is the fact that it's all music all the way through nonstop. It, you know, there was a moment where we thought the show was going to be a traditional musical. We tried a workshop where there were actually scenes in between songs. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. What, what didn't work about that? When, and did you know right away that doesn't work? So what was interesting is that when you're in song, all of a sudden everything gets heightened and there's a ball in the air. And then when you go to a scene, that ball just drops. It, it, and it's not a bad thing. Obviously, there's, you know, in, in, it, it's uh, neither here nor there. But in our musical, it just somehow made things kind of fall down to earth in a way that we didn't want it to. And in the things that we're talking about, about time, about that nonstopness of Hamilton, you know, there's a thing about the show that from that downbeat, like once it starts, you're not going like, to stop listening. You're not going to stop paying attention until an hour and 15 minutes later when that first act is done because it just continues going. And what I love about it, one of the topics we talked about as well, is the, the thought of time. Because we're in song, because it kind of liberated things in a way because you could choose to either take five minutes to do something in real time take five minutes to talk about the first 20 years of Hamilton's life, or take five minutes to go backwards in time to talk about something else. It just allowed you to well, just not have to worry about what rules are, and I think that's one of the, the brilliant things about this show. I want to ask Howell about that from a lighting standpoint. I mean, you've been involved, I think, what, for, on Broadway for 20 years? Is that right? No, sorry, not to, you know, age you. Um, but, um, okay. but, I mean, your experience is incredible. In terms of the difficulty of lighting this, because, because to Lack's point, this is a story which is not told linearly. It does go back and forth in the story from a lighting standpoint. That's got to be extremely challenging. Well, the hardest part about this show is not like a traditional musical. There are 50 songs in the show, so... Like a normal musical is going to have, you know, eight in act one and eight songs in act two. Why can't you write a normal musical? So, <laughs> you sound like my but that mother. Was a, <laughs> that was all of our jobs in this show is to keep it threaded, you know, to get in a song, tell its story, and then get out of it, but also have a thread that leads us from one song into the next. And I think that's where the whole group works so well together, just being able to... Um, just use our experience and our thought process to be able to just to thread it so it doesn't stop, never stops. I mean, for an hour and 15 minutes, you're like, whoa. So that's, that was a Can key I say, element. One of my favorite images that Tommy sort of brought me and brought the entire design team in terms of the look of the show and this spread across all departments was that painting of um, a 19th century operating theater. Um, and it's, you know, this central action, sort of strong light in the middle as they're operating on this cadaver, and then there's this second row of people sort of watching above. And that was a really, really cool image for how we're going to approach Hamilton's life. We're going to take it apart, and we're going to see what happened and how things got to where they were. And it was this really incredible... Who's the painter? Uh, uh, Thomas Aikens. It's the Gross Clinic. And, uh, Steven Soderbergh made it very well known with the Nick, um, that idea of... Uh, you know, the sort of publicness of that kind of experimentation. And, uh, and a couple things, and I, I actually, I wanted to see if David would speak to this because the, the turntable of it all kind of prompted yeah. it, um, is, you know, the other thing that uh, the show, because of the, the nature of the show and the propulsion of the show, I, I'm, I'm, I believe, and Andy believes this very deeply also, that musicals are really about transitions. 
and it's a, there is, uh, there's, an, uh, there's a set amount of energy and attention that I believe an audience has. And a misstep or a faulty transition takes away four units, whereas a good transition keeps it level or even adds a little bit of energy. So the show has no blackouts. Blackouts cause a reset. They, they tell you something's over, and it works in a traditional you know, kind of comedy or blackout set, you know, but, but with this show, every transition that, that we made and that Hal sculpted for us is fluid, and it just keeps on evolving. So that idea of walking into the show and lifting them up with those first lines that Leslie says and not putting them down until that final moment of Act One, and then again with Act Two, uh, you know, is something that we, we talked about a lot and, and Hal executed beautifully. And, you know, one of the things that, that became really apparent when we started working on the show is that the, the beauty of the turntable, and this was something that David was advocating for and, uh, and he can speak to. And you guys resisted it initially, is that we, true? We, yeah, I mean, yes. Uh, so, um, <laughs> but, but only because we resisted it. No, um, it was one of the very first things that David and I spoke about when we were having initial conversations about the job. Interview. Let's call it an interview. He's a friend of mine, but I made him an interview, all right? <laughs> you know, this is big time, guys. Um, so, David actually had a drawing that looked very much like this a year ahead of the time we actually did it. And the one thing that, that it provided that I hadn't even considered is that if you are standing still and have a turntable, we had the ability to show this inevitability of time. Because the reality is we all feel like we're standing still. We're sitting in this theater, but we're not. We're on this rock that is careening you know, at 30,000 miles an hour, whatever it is, through this universe. And there is no stillness. There is no ability to stop that. And so there's a moment in nonstop where there's a conversation with, with Hamilton as he walks down stage with Angelica, and she's taken away, and here comes Pippa, and, and Eliza all of a sudden is just perfectly synced in there. And when, when Andy first talked about that and you saw it, you started to get a sense of what that meant to, to not be able to put the skids on. But, but David, you know, your advocacy and, and your your interest in the, in the turntable was prompted so early. You, it's also not just one me? turntable, it's a turntable within a turntable. It's a double turntable, right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I, God, it's interesting listening to everyone talk about this because you should come to design meetings. We, I can't, you can't imagine how many terrible ideas we have had over the course of making this show. And um, uh, God, imagine if this was in modern day dress. I think about that a lot. Um, anyway, we, the very first reading I did of the show, the very first listen, I could not um, get, get the cyclical emotion of the show out of my head. And when I sat down for the interview with Tommy, it was a legitimate interview, for real. He like made me sweat it out. Um, I did a lot of research, I did a lot of drawings, and um, like David, I basically begged him at the end of it, I was, and I literally said, I'm not gonna throw away my shot um, in the interview. And I thought it was something about the, the hurricane that swept um, Hamilton off of Nevis. I thought there was a cyclical relationship between he and Burr. I, I just felt like there was this kind of passage of time, this, this time travel thing. I thought it represented like an operating theater and a half of uh, the Capitol building, which of course wasn't built for another 100 years after our story takes place. But we put a pin in the idea, and, and this is a sign of a good collaboration. I mean, it's an, a fantastic collaboration. You really don't know where the choreography stops and the design starts in this show. And that's sort of um, lockstep for every single element of the show, whether it's lighting and Burr only being able to like, be trapped in this little box. But we put a pin in it, and Andy and Tommy were like, yeah, okay, corns with his turntables, nothing. And then it was pretty deep in the process. We had shown Lynn a lot of the stuff. We had had many, many meetings um, 
talking about all sorts of iterations of the show and putting a lot of things up against the wall and seeing what it would, would stick. And I think finally I said, you know, actually it was the, my associate designer, Rod Lemond, who I've worked with for almost 20 years, he said, remember that turntable idea? Like, how are we going to deliver stuff to the middle of the stage? How are we going to do this moment and this moment and this moment? And I said in one of these meetings to Andy and Tommy, hey, remember that thing that we had talked about months and months before? And I think the magic number was 10. Tommy said, show me 10 moments where you think this could work in the show. Um, and I sat down and I thought about 10 moments, the sort of Aaron Sorkin walk and talk, you know, Burr meeting the Schuyler sisters, um, uh, the duel. We, we talked about a lot of different, Washington's re then retirement, um, which an example of that is I said, oh, this could happen here. And then Andy and Tommy took that moment to rehearsal and eventually for the public theater production, put him up on a, um, on our staircase, but I basically gave them those 10. Um, they were like, okay, that sounds great. We should do that. Um, and, and, it, and it literally was kind of that easy. And these guys are unbelievably nimble of the mind and they, and they took that idea and I would stop in a rehearsal maybe once a week. I would check it out. And like, to give, it's like giving these guys a toy on Christmas morning and then watch them play with it and you think, oh, it's Lincoln Logs, they're gonna build a house. And they come back and they've built a rocket ship. It's like, <laughs> my 10 were like a joke, you know? Like, I think a couple of my 10 showed up. But I think that unlocked something with regard to the time travel and the stoppage of time and the way that the, the world could swirl around it. But we had this really fascinating moment when um, we were afforded three days or maybe two days when we were at the public theater in the middle of rehearsal. Um, and we brought a few actors down, a couple of assistants, and Andy, you know, it's pretty smart. You guys have, know, you guys have seen that. He, he and Tommy had staged the show in a, in a very, very circular way. And when we got on the stage and we ran the first turntable cue, it really was kind of terrible, respectfully. It was bad. And, and we couldn't really figure it out. And we had this moment where we were like, hey, why don't we take every other person and have them stop? and let the turntable take over. And instantly we saw the choreography jump off the stage because you really had to kind of trust in the floor and let it do its work. Um, and I just think about that Les Mis moment, you know, the thing that makes the moment amazing walking through the streets of Paris is, is not the walking, it's the passing by the crate, passing by the piece of scenery moving on stage. We do it with Mariah Reynolds and we do it several times in the show where we get to deliver people, but the emotional connection there of something moving towards you and you moving past it really is a pretty big breakthrough that we hit. Lynn, let me ask you about uh, King George. Um, sure. Because the, the, the song You'll Be Back, which is so terrific, and, and Lack also, I mean, what I find fascinating is there, there are all these things in it which, again, a listener may not automatically hear. When you heard that song, um, I understand you were thinking maybe a harpsichord, but then you heard some Beatles, or you thought about the Beatles. I mean, I, I heard Beatles all the way. I remember we were actually down in Atlanta working on Bring It On, and Lynn manuel came and said, hey, I have to make a demo of You'll Be Back for Sondheim, right? Is that the, the excitement? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and he said, okay, like, here are the chords, here's the lyric sheet, and he just kind of sang me the first couple of things, and for whatever reason, like... Do I you think Beatles, Lynn, when you, at all? Yeah, I, I wrote that song on my honeymoon. And I remember, so I didn't have a piano. I was on an island. I was, um, so the, the, the melody is that annoyingly in your head because I had to survive my vacation without being able to write it down. Um, and I, I was just, da, 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 da. just keep it in your head, Lynn, and keep it till you get to a piano. Um, and um, 
So yeah, but it, it was always sort of this Beatlesque, like hello goodbye-ish sure. feel to it. Penny Lane, like even when you just hear Lynn sing that wordless melody, like right away you hear that there's a swing. I don't know. I just heard that piano just tinking in the back. It just for whatever reason just spoke to me. And There's then, a little getting better in there as well. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So then it became my thing, like to try to stuff the orchestration with as many Beatles references as possible. Like there's actually even the piano from the beginning is like an upright sound. That the sound on the keyboard is called Madonna, like Lady Madonna piano. So it's like uh-huh. already King George has a special piano. You know, we have a harpsichord. We have like sounds that, are, you know, for me the harpsichord just felt very proper and very British. So we wanted to exploit that and. I wanted to use the strings as well. Like even when King George appears later, there's like a cool little string uh, chordal thing that melts that reminds me of, of uh, fixing a hole. You know, there's all these just, I, I wasn't looking for them. It's just as I was orchestrating, I just thought of another Beatles song and it, and, and it went. It's extraordinary the response that song gets. I think one, I think, I think for, for older theater goers, they go, after 15 minutes of hip hop and R&B, they go, oh God, a white guy singing a song center stage, thank God. <laughs> Thank Christ. We can edit this, right? Uh, Anderson, uh, just, roll the tape back. I can just like... But, but the audience really gets a chance to breathe. It is a first traditional musical comedy hall song. And, um, and so everyone gets a breather. Um, and then what I find is extraordinary is that we've had amazing hip-hop artists come to the song. Their favorite song is King George's song because he walks down with this swagger that is untouchable. Um, and so it sort of hits all the quadrants. It's really crazy, that song. The price of my love is not a price that you're willing to pay You cry in your tea which you hurl in the sea when you see me go by Why so sad? Remember we made an arrangement when you went away Now you're making me mad Remember despite our estrangement I'm your man You'll be back Soon you'll see You'll remember you belong to me You'll be back Time will tell You'll remember that I served you well Oceans rise Empires fall We have seen each other through it all And when push comes to shove I will send a fully armed battalion to remind you of my love da 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 For your praise, 
XM on Broadway Town Hall with the Tony-nominated cast and creative team of Hamilton. From the Richard Rogers Theater, your host, Anderson Cooper. Did, why do you think Broadway had not sort of embraced hip-hop, had embraced rap um, to the extent that you have now? Um, I don't know. I think that I think that my favorite things about hip hop are my favorite things about musical theater. I think both hip hop and musical theater absorb whatever they need to absorb to tell their story. Uh, whether you know musical theater embraces jazz, I think of City of Angels, or I think of uh, rock music of Next to Normal, which is a full-on rock musical, but never comments on the fact that it's a rock musical. It just, that's the musical world in which this family lives. And you take it as a given and, and you go. And that was an enormously inspiring show to me because we can do that with hip hop. Hip hop tells stories, some of my favorite stories are, are within hip hop songs. Um, you so, also talk about the correlation between uh, an, uh, musicals that have an I want that song yeah, all my, all my favorite hip-hop songs are I Want songs, whether it's One Mic by, by Nas or uh, One Shot by um, uh, uh, Lose Yourself by Eminem. And, and that, that, that need, that drive, I mean, you know, they're like, hello, Ethel Merman, like, meet Marshall Mathers. Um, <laughs> it, it's the same it's the same. Now, impulse. that would be a meeting. <laughs> that would be a meeting. It, but it's the same impulse, right? It's that, you know, your, your great musical theater characters want something desperately and they'll do anything to get it. You know, no, you know it's, there's no difference between that and the unsinkable Molly Brown, which was my dad's favorite movie uh, growing up. And so I think... So the I Want song in Hamilton is, is what? Oh, is my shot. My shot. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it took a year to write because I also needed to show and not tell that Hamilton's just this next level mind. So every couplet in it, I felt needed to pass the muster of, you, this would not be out of place in any contemporary hip hop song. It's gotta have that level of lyricism and internal assonance and wordplay. Um, and you know, I, I didn't worry about the audience getting everything the first time. I think that's the biggest sort of leap. And like in terms of, of composing, I mean in terms of, of sort of orchestrating all this, you're also sampling has that been done before? I mean, you're using actual recordings 
enmeshed with the orchestra, correct? No, no, no. not exactly. I, I mean, uh, we do have some loops playing in the show. Like, there's certain sounds that just can't be done by, by human beings. Like, okay. for example, like in, in Tendo Commandments, there's like a hi-hat sound that's exactly perfectly quantized and perfectly placed, like, and it's like not, you know, any human being can't do that same sound repeatedly, make it sound the same for two minutes straight. So that's on a loop. I see. And, but we always have the band playing along with, with the loops. And I got that cue from just seeing live hip-hop bands play. You look at the Roots, you look at Jay-Z's band, you look at Beyonce's band, and when they play live, that sounds like it's in the studio. It sounds so clean and so pristine. So I just really wanted to try to replicate that because I knew I wanted to make it feel live. I wanted it to be organic. I didn't want to hit just play on a track and, and let that be. But then you have to find a way to like, you know, work the machines into the live elements. So like for Insatisfied, for example, when we do have that big rewind cue, like that had to be manufactured with computers. We had to bring in Pippa into the studio to have her say the word helpless and, and treat her voice in a way that makes it sound like, you know, like it's got flans and chorus and chop and screw it and, and do all that stuff to make it sound, you know, modern and, and put that ode. But we actually learned a lot from Bring It On, which was a fully pop score. Like it was, this was the sound of what cheerleaders dance to, which are these incredible techno high energy things. And we learned a lot through trial and error of like how much you can get away with track meshing with a live orchestra and, and, and tried and succeeded and took steps forward and stepped back. So by the time we were working on Hamilton, we knew like what we could play in a pad and what we could pre-record and like we sort of had worked through a lot of the kinks of how to, how to make this really happen with a live orchestra. And then it became this thing where uh, um, I always knew, like even back from Vassar, like what the sound of the show was going to be. I remember uh, Michael Sterebin, who is an orchestrator who I, I deeply admire, was in the audience watching the show at Vassar. Next to normal. And he asked me, so Alex, I'm kind of curious, what's the, what are you thinking for the instrumentation for the show? I'm like, you know what? I'm thinking like a, a pop rhythm section and a string quartet. And he said, that's exactly what I was thinking. I'm like, great. I, I felt so happy. Sterebin approved. Like, yes, I got it right. So, you know, my thought was we would have this rhythm section that would have the keyboards, that would have the, the electric bass, that would have the modern now element. And then we have this string quartet that was these instruments that were made out of wood, that were of the period, these instruments that you didn't have to plug into an amplifier. And we never double the strings with keyboards in our show. Like, if there's string sounds in our show, it's the string players in that string quartet to really kind of put these two worlds together. We've got a couple of people in the audience, serious listeners, um, who actually have questions. I think uh, Ruth Bodner uh, has a question for David. Hi, David. Uh, first of all, I want to say thank you. I've learned so much today from all of you. Uh, how do you bring your unique flavor to both of your characters, Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson? Performance-wise, how are they different? How are they different? Um, <clears throat> Well, they uh, they function very differently in the in the show. This is um, one of the great, one of the many great gifts that sort of this show has given me is the is the chance to operate in these two very different ways in the same show. So Lafayette, um, <laughs> I'm so focused on trying to complete Lafayette's arc in the limited amount of of stage time that he has that there's not a, a ton of play out here. It's very much for Lafayette. It's about um, really investing in every single moment with everybody else on stage um, because we have to see this guy go from barely being able to speak English to um, being a great general represented by leaping off a table and rapping really fast, right? And, uh, <laughs> um, and, so, and <laughs> you know, I remember sort of being in the studio with Tommy kind of uh, obsessing over, like, 
how much do we have to learn about him in this like little two-word thing he gets in the middle of this song? Because it it really is important, you know, this cross that happens um, where uh, uh, I ask for French aid, I pray that Francis sent a ship. That's all we hear from him. But that's a huge transition for me as an actor. I have to. I have to. Um, that's the only time we really get to see Lafayette becoming a general. The next time we see him really, the next time we really hear him speak, he's, he's done it. So like a huge amount for me has to happen. I mean, you guys don't care. It doesn't make any difference to you probably. But like for me, I have to like a, a huge amount of shit has to happen uh, in this little cross. Um, and so it's all very here. And then Jefferson comes out and immediately gets to like, oh, I see all of you guys and I blow you kisses and wave and like make you clap more if you're not clapping enough. Uh, you know, like Jefferson um, has already proven himself in his own mind. He proved himself at birth. He uh, doesn't need your approval, he expects it. So, um, so that Jefferson gets to be all about the audience and they're separated by an act. So I have this first act that's a lot of like sort of hard work on the stage. And then I have this second act where I get to really just play with you guys and like oftentimes be a really bad scene partner to Lynn and, uh, <laughs> and just um, sort of take so much from out here um, and incorporate that onto the stage. So that's really fun. And as far as like bringing my own style. I don't know any other way to do it, I guess, is the thing. And we were given the green light for that. Um, Tommy very early on said, we're not writing a book report. And that to me was like, yup, got it. <laughs> no more reading books. <laughs> stay in school, guys. Hey, this is Tommy Kiel saying, stay in school. <laughs> Just not David. Went to Brown. Whatever. Um, so, no, but what, what, that, what that did say for me was that we, we had to... Um, you had to make these people alive in a, in a way that feels super honest, not, not um, you know, and intriguing and, and charismatic in a way that really sits very comfortably on, on each actor's body. So, like, I couldn't do things, you know, and, oh, God, thank God for Andy, too, because, like, he would see me trying to do things that I just couldn't do and then change the choreography so I didn't have to do it, you know? And I think, like, uh, you know... <laughs> Because there were moments in rehearsal where he would start choreographing things and I would go to the bathroom or I would like, <laughs> or I would like, not on stage, lay yeah, down, yeah, I would no, leave, no, I would no. like leave the room or I would okay. lay down on top of a staircase just like, please don't put me in this, I can't, like I really can't do this. <laughs> oh man. And uh, yeah, and Anthony Ramos is always like front out, yeah, put me in the game coach. And I'm like, stop making me look bad, homie, I gotta. <laughs> um, so, it, it, you know, but the, it became about just um, trying to make sure that every move I was making as both of these characters was something that felt from some part of me that it was natural, was, could, could read as, as truly coming out of myself and not as something I had to learn, as something that I was born with as opposed to something I had to learn for this experience, which was all about learning for me, which was literally about like 90 minutes a week with Lack teaching me how to sing. Like was literally, you know what I'm saying? So much of this was new. I knew that the performance in order for, for this thing to be successful in the way that we wanted it to be successful had to feel supernatural. And we were given that green light to make it that way so um so that was the real that was how that came about got another question from a, a brody holman yes. yeah hey brody you have a nice piece in the play referencing Macbeth. who is the most shakespearean character in your point of view aaron burr or alexander hamilton who's the most what? shakespearean 
oh man, well, the whole relationship is Shakespearean, isn't it? I mean, that's sort of the fun of it, is it is, um, you know, if the rule is in tragedy that um, your greatest strength is your greatest flaw, that's, that's Hamilton to a T, right? He, he, he has to express what he thinks, um, and whether that's good or that's bad, whether that's constructive or destructive. Someone who always has to fight for what's right is really great when you're in a war, um, and when that war is over, well, who's left to fight? Um, it's sort of like Hamilton fights the British in Act One, and he fights himself in Act Two. And, um, and that's, that's also, I, the thing about Hamilton Burr is that they're twins. Um, they're twins in a way, they, they have the same traumatic upbringing Burr is born in privilege, Hamilton is not. So Burr has this sense of, there are great consequences if I do the wrong thing. Um, Hamilton is responding to the same stimuli with, I've already seen the worst of, that humanity can throw at me, so there's nothing left to lose. Um, and in the moment when Hamilton um, is cautious and Burr is not, one kills the other. And that's, that's the stuff of great tragedy. That's the stuff of when... Because they, they also learn from each other a great deal over the course of the show. This is not um, a story where two people are just bumping against each other um, in terms of their, their way of life. Um, Hamilton becomes more adaptable, um, like Burr in Act 2. Burr becomes... Uh, Burr learns to chase what he wants in Act 2. But it doesn't get them out of the tragedy that we, most of us, know about them if you studied, paid attention even a little in social studies. Um, mainly what you know about Aaron Burr is he's the guy who killed Hamilton. Mainly what you know about Hamilton is that he died in a duel. Um, and so uh, this thing linking these two men, um, and, and Tommy's great insight very early on when we were talking about how we were playing this was, play them as friends. They're friends, most of the show. Um, and so that is the stuff of great drama because it's not a story about two enemies and it ends with one killing the other. It's, about two friends um, who were oil and water. Yeah, I think uh, the other thing about great tragedy, you know, any of the ones that Shakespearean ones, especially, you know, we watch them again and again because if they're done well, you come into a theater and you hope it turns out differently. You know, if we do our jobs right, if we start the show with enough love and enough connective tissue, um, you should forget somewhere in the middle how this thing ends if we do if we do our jobs right that night. Got a question from uh, Dana Whalen. Uh, the spoof musical Forbidden Broadway once included a song into the words uh, about the complexity of Stephen Sondheim's lyrics. The lyrics of Hamilton are similarly dense and complex. Have any of you had any problem memorizing and keeping track of where you are in the show, or have you had to cover for another cast member who wandered? Christopher, <laughs> that's okay. Oh, I was just going to say, um, when, when Lack was talking about how this, this music, it just goes, like you, you kind of hop on the train, Chris compared it to a, a train, that's what it feels like. There's this train that you've jumped on, and it's going. And if you have a human moment where you forget something or you say something different than you, than you were supposed to say, the train just keeps going. And that's kind of the, the scariest part about about doing this, but also the most beautiful part about it is that you're always on your toes. Um, so yes, that does happen. There's, there are times when we kind of uh, go a little bit, I mean, at least for me, uh, I go a little bit like deer in the headlights, like, oh my gosh, whoa, what's happening right now? I mean, like this experience, we do this eight times a week. 
Um, and by now we've done it more than 325 times, including downtown. So there are moments where, you know, it'll just be a little bit different because we're different every day. The, the, the other Sondheim quote that's applicable here is not a day goes by where I don't mess up at least one lyric. I just have too many words and it's my own damn fault. How many words do you have? Um, how many words are in the entire show? It's like 22,000 some odd words. 22,000 um, words. The, uh, but I, I remember the first one I did, the first one I really went up badly was, it was Right Hand Man, and I'm about to take command from Washington. And as I'm about to take the quill from Washington, I look up and I go, oh, Jasmine's up there. I never noticed Jasmine up there before. <laughs> Not throwing away my shot. We go into the next line, and I say, what's the lyric? Um... You need all the help you can get. And I say, I have some friends. And instead of saying Lauren's Mulligan, I said, Morin's Lulligan. And then I tried to get back on the train, but that train was gone. So what came out was, you need all the help you can get. I have some friends, Morin, Lulligan, Okay, what else? One of the, uh, we, we have to unfortunately wrap it up, but one of the, the amazing things is getting warm. I know. One of the amazing things that, that you all do is, is have so many young people who come to see the show, and, and, and you get schools of young people coming in. And one of the things I was reading about in the, the Hamilton book, which I hadn't thought about, is when the show is ultimately licensed to be performed in schools, the impact that that is going to have just from generations to generations. And I just, on a, as a closing thought, I just wondered what you hope people take away from this, as they, when they, not just when they're sitting here, but when they leave the theater. When, what do you hope the impact of this? I'm so glad you, you brought up the student matinees because they are the best part of our job. I mean, without question, they're the best audiences. And that's not on some idealistic, I believe the children of are our future type thing. I mean, they are literally the best audiences. They, are, they don't know how to do anything but be honest. Um, so they give us more energy than any other show. Um, they give us more inspiration. And what I think they take away, um, because they, they are so extraordinary and vocal, um, they're not all gonna become theater majors. They're not all gonna write musicals. But I think what audiences are taking away is, man, Hamilton lived three lifetimes worth in his short time on this earth. Um, and whether you want to do theater or you want to do something else, this show leaves you thinking, what am I going to do in my short time on this planet? Because look what they did, and look what Eliza did uh, in terms of uh, eliminating the distance between um, something that happened 200 years ago and a story that carries us into today and has resonance uh, in our lives. And so... You know, that's, that's, my, that's the, the thing that's so extraordinary about the show is the emails I get from friends, they come at three in the morning, they come at four in the morning, they go, I'm thinking about what I'm doing with my life because I saw what Hamilton did with his or what Eliza did with hers. Um, and, and, and that's sort of an extraordinary thing to, to share with young people. Can you make a musical about this current presidential election, please? <laughs> Yeah. I don't think any of us have the critical distance <laughs> necessary. Well, listen, thank you so much uh, to, uh, to everybody here. And thank you to Sirius XM Radio. Thank you all. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to our exclusive SiriusXM on Broadway Town Hall event with the Tony nominees of Hamilton. Missed any? Want to hear it again? Encore tonight, 9 Eastern, 6 Pacific, exclusively on Broadway.